Welcome. Thank you for listening to Spiritual Living with author and teacher Francois Feinberg. May the message you're about to hear earnestly touch your heart, and may it encourage you in your ongoing love of God the Father, your enjoyment of the Lord Jesus Christ, and your fellowship in both the Holy Spirit and the body of Christ. There's a part of my personal journey with God that I don't often get the opportunity to share with people. And I want to take a risk today and go out on a limb and let you in a little bit as to a major event in my own personal walk with God. But first, I met Jesus only in 1993. In 1995, I heard God call me into the ministry. God spoke to me at a school as I was doing evangelism in 1995. And he burdened my heart to one day have a school and to be a teacher in the body of Christ. And that was April 1995. And I've known ever since that day what God has called me to do. I have never had a doubt, although I've done many different things and I've taken many different steps in life, I have always been in pursuit of the one thing, and it's to be a part of the building and the equipping of the body of Christ. But what I want to share with you is, even though I had this burden and this desire to be a teacher and to speak for God, I did not expect the Lord to separate me for an entire year into isolation and into solitude. And that's exactly why I came to America. In fact, I came to America based upon the word of the Lord to my own heart and the confirmation of a few mentors in my life. I came to Arkansas in the United States, not to pursue preaching or further equipping and training for my own uh, edification in God and in biblical knowledge. But I came actually to a Franciscan monastery. Yeah. I did not come to become a Franciscan. I did not come to live necessarily the Franciscan life or pursue any of that. I came to be a gardener. I came to simply for one year in isolation, away from my country, away from my culture, away from my language, I came to simply be on my knees in a garden and pull weeds. And I fully knew what the calling of God was within me, and it was to be a Bible teacher. But nevertheless, the Lord took a little bit of a sidestep in my life, and He quieted me. He took me away, and I withdrew from South Africa to a, um, you might say, an isolated, withdrawn a solitary place in Arkansas. And there I lived in a Franciscan community for close to a year. It's a part of my story that a lot of folk do not know about. I don't speak about it often, but uh, here we go. I want to let you in on this. Now, why did I do that? Isn't God's calling on my life to, to have a school? Is God's calling not for me to teach, 
Should I not be in books and studying? And should I not go to more, let's say, schools and get more degrees and more diplomas? And should I not travel and explore? Why would God quiet me down? Why would God strip me and just let me be on my knees in quiet, in solitude, in in isolation? Well, I struggled with that. I, I couldn't understand exactly what God was doing at that time. But now, 20 years later, I fully understand what the Lord was doing. He was doing in me what he often does within men and women throughout many, many, many of the ages. And it's simply to withdraw them from the hustle and bustle of life, to separate them from life as usual, where they can just minister to him. Before they go and minister for him and speak for him and and work with him and even for him, It's as though the man that he wants to use and the woman that he wants to use, he often pulls them away, pulls them aside, and he works with them. And for some it's a year, for some it's three years. I think of Moses. God withdrew Moses for some 40 years to the backside of the desert. I think of David, as best as I understand, he was in a way in caves and hiding and separated for about 10 years Um, I remember Christ for some 30 years. He was in a way in isolation before his ministry embarked. And then God even took him away for 40 days where the Spirit led him into the wilderness. I think of the disciples for some three odd years. They were separated. I think of Paul that was separated as best as I understand for some three years where he was just before God. And it doesn't matter if you're on your knees in a garden pulling weeds or you are locked up in your room and you cannot get out. If God facilitates a season in your life of isolation, then it's probably to train you. It is probably to deal with some issues in your heart where the busyness of life um, cannot bring that about. Because in the busyness of life, we often suppress the issues of our own heart and all the things that God wants to deal with, it's, it's, it's almost as though we deny that and we just stay busy, 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 busy. But if you find yourself currently in a season where God has locked you up, you have been separated, and it's, it's almost as though you are in a cell. By the way, that's what the monastic community calls their, their bedroom. They call it a cell. And their house in which they live, it's called a hermitage. If God has currently locked you up in a cell, or let's say life has locked you up in a cell, the circumstances of life has created a hermitage opportunity for you, and it's almost as though you are living a little bit of a monastic life. Monastic, monk, has the root word mono, which means one or single at its core. And that's what monks pursue, is to live single before God. And if you're currently experiencing a kind of a singularity where you are living a mono life, you can't live life as usual in the crowds and you can't come and go as you see fit, then I want to tell you God has an appointment with you. It's no accident that you are isolated. He is probably, just like Moses, wanting to train you 
so that when that season is over, and again, it could be 40 years, it could be 40 days. But you better know that in this season of isolation, God is doing something in you, and it's, it's to equip you for what's coming. But in this season of isolation, I, uh, I dare say this, it's almost less about you, and it's more about Him. It's as though He has a need, and He just wants you to be before Him and recalibrate your focus and your adoration and your devotion to Him. And when I say God has a need, I'm not trying to say that He is insufficient or He has a lack. But it's almost as though, like Martha, you and I like to be busy. And Mary chose the better portion to just sit at His feet and just to love Him and to give Him attention and perhaps to minister to Him and perhaps to cry our tears on Him and to wash His feet. Why is God withdrawing you? It's probably to equip you. You better pay attention to the lessons He has for you. But can I add, God is probably withdrawing you so that you can just love Him and pour out the core and the depth and the fullness of your being on Him. And it's almost as though that if God can gain the fullness of your heart, it's almost as though He will transfuse the fullness of His heart into you. And when He opens up the door for you to leave your hermitage, your cell, you will not just go with another teaching. You will not just go with another theory. You will go with a passion. You will go with a conviction. You will go with a knowing and a surety. You will go with a faith. And you will go with a heart that you can't get from book knowledge. You will go with God's heart that was baptized into you. Why is God withdrawing you? It's so that His need can be satisfied. And what is His need? His need is to put Himself, the fullness of His own heart, into you. So yeah, no wonder for the man and woman that God wants to use. No wonder He will facilitate often times of isolation and solitude. And instead of fighting with God, and instead of complaining, Oh God, why are you doing this to me? What if you were to just use that time and pour out your own heart and receive His heart for you. What if? What if solitude has a purpose and it's for the exchange of hearts inasmuch as a man and a woman when they make love they close the door and they go into the secret place. And what happens there? There is the giving and the receiving of the heart. So here he is at the sea. It says, A great multitude from the Galilee followed him, 
and from Judea. So uh, the Lord has quite a following. He's a celebrity. Um, it says people came from Jerusalem, Idumea, and beyond the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude hearing what things he did, they came to him. Hey, you and I would have come to him as well. He multiplies bread without a fast food license. Like, how does he do that? We heard that he makes liquor flow through the wee hours of the night. He takes water, turns it into liquor. This is awesome. That speaks to me. I want that kind of a Jesus. Honey, packed bags. We're going to Cana. Um, this guy has done phenomenal things. I think we need to go check it out. He speaks phenomenal things. Let's go listen and see what he has to say. So he attracts quite a crowd. And um, I can just imagine Jesus um, looking at the crowd thinking, wow, this, this is awesome. So many people following me, listening to me. I get to feed them. I get to really care for them. This is great. But watch what will happen here. It says in verse 9, And uh, he told his disciples to have a little boat ready near him because of the crowd so that they would not throng him. So he's on the, the Sea of Galilee, and people just want to touch him. People want to have a little bit of one-on-one -on -one time with him. And he's like, okay, hey, I've got to push off into the, to the Sea of Galilee just a little bit, and then I can speak to the crowd. So uh, verse 10, he healed many so that as many as had afflictions pressed toward him to touch him. Uh, that's so typical of Mark's gospel. It's just healing from start to finish. Mark's gospel. Even the very last sentence in Mark's gospel has to do with signs and wonders. It's just a magnificent, action-packed gospel. And it says here, verse 11, The unclean spirits, when they beheld him, they fell before him. They cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. The gospel is full of demons. It's awesome. Lots of deliverance, lots of exorcism taking place. Lots of action. And verse 12, he charged them many times to not make him known. So he speaks to demons and devils, evil spirits, and says, Hey, don't tell people who I am. I know you demons know who I am. Zip it. So we have a scene here of a popular man. A kind of a celebrity. So much so that he's got to push off from the crowd just a little bit. Otherwise, they will choke him. They will overcome him. And he's just a man. Lots of folk. If I was Jesus, I would look at this and say, Success! Yes! Success! We've reached ministry. Success! Verse 13. And he went up to the mountain and called to him those whom he himself wanted and they went to him we have a scene at the sea the sea of Galilee is a big lake not as big as Lake Martin but that lake is the livelihood for people in the Galilee at the lake there is commerce Trade, trade routes. There's the city of Capernaum. I've been there many, many times. They collect taxes there. There's a lot of income, a lot of export. 
And the, the sea itself is a huge source of support to that community. So Jesus comes to the sea right into their neck of the woods. Right where their sicknesses are, he comes and he heals and he ministers. Does God love people? You bet. Does he want to heal people and drive out evil spirits right where they're at, at the sea? In the hustle and bustle of life, commerce, taxes, villages all around the sea because there's water, there's fish, industry. And yeah, God loves people. And he gets into their world right there to heal to deliver, to minister, thank you, Lord. But then all of a sudden, he withdraws from the water and he goes up onto a mountain. And the Sea of Galilee was formed because of volcanic activity, so it created a huge depression there that eventually filled up with water. But everything around it is just going straight up uh, into the mountains. We've hiked all over those mountains, spectacular But I want you to notice a contrast is taking place. The water down here, the hustle and bustle, society, culture, commerce, the busyness of making money, buying, selling, trading. Then all of a sudden, he says, okay, I'm done with the people at the sea. I'm done with the masses. I'm stepping aside, I'm stepping up onto a mountain And it says there, he called those whom he wanted now to be with him. A little change of pace. At the Sea of Galilee, we wanted him. I had a need. I had a demon. My daughter is sick. I'm hungry. I've got leprosy. I'm blind. Is God wanting to step into my world? You bet. Is he wanting to deliver me and set me free? Absolutely. How thankful we are that the Lord comes and he meets us right where we are in the hustle and bustle of Capernaum, Galilee, commerce, busyness. But when it comes to him passing on the torch to others, He moves beyond healing and deliverance to instruction. Down at the water, he heals and he meets people's need. But when he goes up onto the mountain, he has a need. And it is to instruct a few people that he himself wants. So now he leaves the masses for the minority. He leaves the hustle and bustle and he goes up onto a mountainside. Mountains play a significant part in the entire biblical record. On mountains, things are revealed. Mountains, in typology, represents a place where things are revealed, where the curtain is pulled apart and folk can enter in. Let me give you some examples. Um, Noah's boat landed on a... Mountain, new beginning, new creation, a, a new revelation of what God is doing. Mountaintop. You remember Abraham took Isaac onto a mountain to go offer him. Remember? And there in that mountain, God revealed to him 
that he's not a manslayer, but a lamb will be the substitute. In that mountain, he got to know God's name as Jehovah, Yahweh, Yireh, the Lord who provides. We say Jehovah Jireh. But the Lord who provides, on that mountaintop it became known. Um, you know that Moses went up onto a mountain to make God known to the people, did he not? Um, and he brought the law. So, a mountaintop. Um, you know that Elijah and the prophets of Baal had a contest at Mount Carmel. I've been to that mountain also. Um, going up onto a mountain, and it was the God of the Israelites, Yahweh, versus Baal, the God of the Canaanites. And so there was this contest, who's going to answer by fire? And God, of course, answered with fire and became known. Whoa, God is the God of Elijah, the real God. Is everybody with me? Mountains play a very, very interesting role in, in, in the Bible. Um, Jesus here goes up onto a mountain. In um, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we even have a, a segment that we call the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard that. Um, we're going to call it a little something different in due time. We'll explain to you later. But what happened on that mountain? Jesus revealed what the kingdom of God was all about. Mountaintops. Um, you know in Matthew 17, Jesus again goes up onto a very high mountain and he gets transfigured in front of the, uh, Peter, James, and John. You remember the transfiguration? Where Jesus literally shines forth his glory. They didn't know he was a God-man in the flesh. They just thought he was a really good rabbi. But he shows them there in Matthew 17 who he really is. He's God. It's a place of revelation. Um, a most despicable mountain, Mount Calvary. The Lord was crucified in that place of the skull, a mountain. Mountains play a significant, significant role. Where did Paul go for uh, numerous years to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ? He went to Mount Sinai. The same place where Moses received the law and where Elijah went and hid in a cave, is the very same place that Paul received the revelation of the New Testament. Mountains play a significant role. Now track with me. We're all down by the lake. And Jesus came into you and I's world to heal us. And we're so thankful that He's feeding us. And He's casting out devils. And He's delivering us. We need that. But when He goes up on a mountain, it's for His need. He selects whom He wants on that mountain because He wants to reveal things to them. Impart things into them. But notice now what's going to happen. He leaves the waterfront and he selects a few that he wants. It's not the masses that are welcomed anymore, although God loves the masses. Amen! And he wants to meet the needs of the masses. Now, he wants people that will care for him. People that will be with him. People that will catch his spirit. Catch his heart. Are you with me? So let's read on. It says, He went up onto the mountain, and he called to him... Those whom he himself wanted. Y'all, dare we say that God has a want? Here it is. The man, the Lord Jesus Christ, he loved the masses. 
to minister to their need, but he himself wanted something also. And it says here, and they went to him. Verse 14, and he appointed the twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. Do you see that in your Bible? So that they might be with him. Receive his heart. Receive his spirit. That they might be with him and love him and care for him. He has a need, if we can say it in such a way. Yes, he's come into the needs of the masses, but now he wants a few people to be set apart and say, Hey, I want you for myself. I have a need. I have a want. I want you to just be with me and walk with me. Leave the shores. Leave the familiar. Leave what you've always been accustomed to. Leave the traditions. Leave the commerce and the rat race of life down there. I just want a few people around me. And it says that they might be with him and that he might send them to preach. Great clue to the Christian life right here for those who have eyes to see, ears to hear, and a big marker to wrap around that verse. Before God's going to send you as an apostle to represent Him, before He has you working for Him, and speaking for Him, and healing for Him, before that He sends you to go be His ambassador, He just wants you to be with Him. To sit at His feet. To come with Him to a mountaintop that's a little bit more isolated. A little less busy. Mountaintops. It's a place where God interacts with people. Jesus has a need... That folk would be just with Him. He wants you to live practically for Him. He wants you to go preach and heal and do great things with Him. And be busy with Him. Absolutely. But before you get going and before He sends you, He says, Hey, I just want you for me. And He selects a few and He says, Come away with me. Come away with me. I want to transfer my heart into you. And then I'm going to send you down to the lake to go replicate it. This is something that is dear to my heart. Before we become practical for the Lord, we have to come away a little bit to that private, secret, mountaintop place. That prayer closet, that place where we just touch his heart. It's a very mysterious interaction. But when he's done with us in this mysterious place of revelation and impartation where we catch his heart, the grand goal is that you would be useful to him down in the valley. Is it not true that many of y'all have had mountaintop experiences? Yes. We go to camp, we come to Legacy. We go to a crew, we go to church, 
And it's a mountaintop experience, except when we get back to the valley, we crash and we burn. Have you had such an experience? That just means you had a mountaintop experience by way of inspiration and not by way of instruction. You had a mountaintop experience by way of production and not by way of a transference of spirit. So when Jesus calls them up onto the mountain, He's not putting up a show for them. He's not trying to inspire. When He draws them away, it's so that they could have a transaction heart to heart. A transference of His person into them. So when they go down into the valley, the valley don't overcome them. They overcome the valley. Amen? This is the kingdom of God. So yes, we need mountaintop experiences. Here's your biblical verse to prove we need mountaintop experiences. We've got to get away. And so he calls the disciples to come away with me. Come away. But it's not just for inspiration. It's not just for the sake of the mountaintop. He is going to send them into the valley. And by the way, that's why you and I are here today. Because they went into the valley and spoke God. And somehow somebody believed, and another person believed, and another person, and boom, here you and I are because of them. So no, they didn't just have an inspiration at the mountaintop. They were equipped. And something of God lodged inside of them. It was transferred into them, and it stuck. So that when they got down into the valley, into the thick of the world, into the busyness, into the rat race, they made a difference. Aha. The proof of this legacy mountaintop experience will be how practically do you live out God in your neck of the woods. I know that you're involved in many political things at campus and I commend you for that. Here we want to equip you in the kingdom of God so that even as you all go about solving the problems of the country, thank you, <laughs> we need a lot of help, but that you would be somebody that emanates and dispenses something of God in the whole situation. So instead of the valley overcoming you, you overcome. And you practically live for the Lord because of this mountaintop experience. So yes, we're very mystical over here. It's just you and Jesus. It's awesome. We catch His heart. Mm, kumbaya. We sing every day. It's just awesome. But if we are useless in your campus and where you're going, if you're useless where you're at, hey, then this mountaintop was just a kumbaya. But this mountaintop needs to be an encounter. Not just an inspiration, but a transference. Amen? So the Lord is saying to you guys, come away. And guess what? Here you are. I commend you. I so commend you for leaving the valley, leaving the ocean, the lake, and coming away to the mountaintop.